0: Of course, the news media jumped on this, like, this is a recipe for eternal youth. Like, you're going to say that (laughs) this is something you can put in a cream and then have eternal youth. Just eat jellyfish or slap it on your skin and live forever with non-reducing telomeres of the eternal jellyfish.
1: Welcome once again to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by fire containment, it's fire season in the United States and it's getting worse every year. And so every summer you hear about all these horrible forest fires going on. And then they say something like, the fire is 40% contained. What does that mean? Does that mean the fire is 40% of the size that it was? Does that mean if you were to draw a perimeter around it, like 40% of it can't go anywhere? What does it mean? You've heard this, right? Yes. I. Are you I, as confused as I am when they say it, or do you just accept it and say 40% that's probably going in the right direction? I
0: think I've always assumed it was the latter of your, I've never thought about it that deeply, but I, I have assumed it's like very visual to me when they say 40% of the fire is contained. I assume there is some established perimeter, and 40% of that, they're like, the flames are down. <laughs> and then the 60% is raging out of control.
2: But it's true. I don't know. I don't I, know.
1: I don't know what it means, and I'm confused every time.
2: Okay. My <laughs> assumption was similar to yours, that 60% would be thought of as being not in control, and 40% of the space know. is under control. But, but I'm it can sure grow, so, right? I mean So right, can be right. like, how do we—
1: if we say 40% of it is contained, the other 60% could just grow to be the same size as the 40% used to be.
2: I don't know what it means. I'm sure some of our environmental health colleagues would know the actual evidence-based They're answer. not
0: sitting in do, this do room. Do we
2: have, any, have one in the room?
0: That would be, you know, we talked with Amruta She'd probably know the okay. answer to this question. Right. Like, like you, the next time I see her, I'll ask would her. Would you look yes, into that I will, and,
1: and, I will. and update us on a... Okay. Anyway, I've, I've wasted enough time mm-hmm. talking about that, but it is the kind of thing that just confuses me. So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thanks, Matt. So we are continuing on with a series that we have been doing around the strategic research directions here at the Boston University School of Public Health. They are Climate, the Planet, and Health, Health inequities, Infectious Diseases, Cities and Health. And today we are talking about mental and behavioral health. And to do that, we have a fantastic guest, Dr. Sarah Lipson from the Departments of Health. And I have to pause here to make sure I get it right. Health Law policy and management. Did I get that right?
2: Nailed it. Yep.
1: Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. And as a reminder, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, we've got the mini MPH. The mini MPH is you can go on there and get a MPH that is smaller than the regular sized MPH. And you can do that either, there's a free one and one that comes with continuing education credits. So Get there before the, they, they run out. And also, Jess, I got some good news.
0: Oh, we, got, we got a
1: review. Hey, so hope uh, it's a good one. No, it's not. But <laughs> what a stinker. I'm going to read <laughs> it <laughs> anyway. So this one is from Great Britain. It's entitled, I Love This. It's a five-star review. It says, I work in public health in the UK. I'm currently revising for my Part A exams. Listening to this podcast is the most enjoyable part of my revisions. It's interesting, informative, engaging, and fun. The hosts explain complex concepts clearly and well without dumbing it down. I really recommend. So that's from Tabith.
0: Thank you, Tabitha. That's very kind. So we are
1: very, very happy about that. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on a mindset intervention to reduce stress in adolescence. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we are going to talk about what it's like to work on issues of mental health. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we'll talk about things that make us laugh out loud or we just found super interesting. So. Segment one. So we're, we're talking about an article, as I said, that looked at a mental health intervention. It was published in Nature and it was entitled A Synergistic Mindsets Intervention Protects Adolescents from Stress, which I have to say would not fly in many journals where you're not allowed to put a result in the headline, but nature doesn't mind, so there you go. It was by first author David Yeager of the Department of Psychology and Behavioral Sciences and Policy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, This one was published in May of 2021, so we are, for this series, revisiting some articles that are not recently out, and there were not a lot of headlines on this one, but one I did find was from Yahoo News, which said, 30-minute class can improve teenagers' stress response study finds. I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but it seems close enough. So, Jess, can you can you walk us through this one? It was, was there was a lot going on in here. There's
0: a lot going on in this paper. Thanks, Matt. This is an interesting one, and thanks to Sarah for bringing it to our attention. I'm glad we'll be able to talk about it. So, the, the context of this paper is that adolescents now, especially, are under a tremendous amount of stress. And adolescence has always been a time characterized by stress, um, but specifically now in this stage of the pandemic, yep. there is a lot more attention towards mental health of of teens and adolescents and this article takes place in the context of that of that of that world of this world that we're living in trying to think about ways to mitigate the negative implications of stress for adolescents And so stress, as we know, is typically viewed as a negative exposure and something to be avoided. However, there's research on stress that highlights that stress can actually be a positive force and an adaptive characteristic, and that managing stress is a critical component of growing up and is key to being able to try new things and to achieve greater success in life. And that steering away from all stressors actually reduces adolescents and children's and teens' ability to... To manage and learn from and succeed in the context of difficult situations so this research takes place in this mode of quote-unquote it's called stress optimization research the idea of is there a way that stress can be harnessed to its full benefits and cannot be detrimental or we can reduce the detrimental effects for stress for adolescent health and so these authors are focusing on shifting mindsets, and they talk a lot about the concept of a mindset, which they define as a cognitive process that operates at a more general level than situation-specific appraisals of a situation. So what they're trying to do is they're looking at whether or not someone's general framing of situations in life affects their response to stress and their interpretation of stress, rather than the focus on a given specific stressful situation and how you might manage a specific situation, but what is your general larger framework or mindset? And so they're focusing here on shifting mindsets and seeing if they can develop and then shift Mindsets. And so they're trying to develop a mindset to help view, for adolescents to view stress as beneficial and adaptive and not necessarily negative, something to be avoided. And so in order to do this, they used an intervention called Synergistic Mindset Approach, where they combined two existing mindset interventions, the growth mindset, which is something as a parent nowadays we hear a lot about, the growth mindset, and something called the Stress Can Be Enhancing Mindset. So the growth mindset is the idea that abilities are not fixed and can be developed with effort, that if you put your mind to something, you can learn something. So if you're not doing very well in math, a growth mindset will say you, you will learn, you will learn, have, have patience and confidence in yourself and you will learn, your abilities are not fixed. The stress can be enhancing mindset is the idea that I was talking about earlier, that the stress response can be a positive and can be controlled in your interest once you understand its purpose and can be channeled rather than being distracting, for example, Um, an enhancing mindset. So the goal is to reduce the threat type stress response. And so these are intertwined ideas. And so what the authors did, which was actually very interesting, they conducted six separate randomized double-blind experiments with high school and college-age students, more than 3,000 of them total in the United States, and tested this synergistic mindset approach where they used, I think they were 30-minute online modules that students completed in the context of a classroom. That was training them in these mindsets, in the growth mindset, and in the stress-can-be-enhancing mindset. I'm going to just ask, you said
1: modules, but I thought it was just one one 30-minute module?
0: I think it was one 30-minute module that combined these two modules, that, that kind of combined these information two, on the growth okay. mindset. Right, Perfect. right. It seemed as my understanding was that, and this is actually a question I would ask Sarah a little bit later, is that it was kind of unclear to me what exactly they were doing. I, I, what, I,
1: uh, right. I had some questions
0: about that It was not that clear, but they had the students in a classroom with the idea being that this was short and this was something students could do independently without engagement from parents or teachers. And they, it could be done in a school environment or a home environment, for example something that would be a pretty easy and straightforward intervention. So they developed this module that had these combined approaches. And then in these six different studies, they evaluated both self-reported and physiological responses to exposures to different stressors across different time periods. And so the stressors that they chose were ones that they considered typical for adolescents and students of this age, including really hard academic assignments, having to present in public, taking tests, having someone negatively comment on your public... Presentations and different sorts of social and romantic stress, as an example. Their outcome measurements were students' response focused appraisals of their own performance and feelings after the experience. They looked at cognitive appraisals. As to how the students felt at a time lag between one and three days and then at three weeks. And then they also looked at a series of physiological responses to stress, including total peripheral resistance, which was a measurement of blood flow to try to understand heart rate and kind of cardiovascular manifestations of stress. They looked at something called daily negative self regard in some combination of the students and also activation of the HPA axis, which was cortisol. They were looking at some bio uh, measures as well, and then self reported generalized internalizing symptoms. And I'm hopeful that Sarah can walk us through some of these outcome measurements. But basically, what they did in these six different experiments, they had different ages. They had different groupings of students in different contexts. They had different kinds of exposures, and they had different sorts of endpoints that they were measuring. And they were looking at these six studies as a package to try to say, what is the big picture here that can be derived from these series of of different analyses that were all looking at the same question. And then they used a series of Bayesian approaches to analyze their data. And what they found is that the dual intervention approach, so the synergistic mindset approach, was remarkably. Successful across nearly every experimental design, population, and endpoint that they looked at. Notably, students who had at baseline a greater negative perception of stress were more likely to benefit, which was interesting, than students who had a a more positive perception of stress. Students were more likely to benefit from this sort of intervention on high stress days versus low stress days, one of their key findings. And what I thought was remarkable is that in one of their experiments, they even associated an association with long term academic achievement with a one-time sitting for this mindset intervention six or seven months after the intervention. Their specific finding, the synergistic mindset intervention increased overall rates of student passing their core classes in an urban high school by more than 14 percent six to seven months after the one-time 30-minute intervention. So these were remarkable findings.
1: They were remarkable indeed, and we can talk about the remarkable nature of them. I will say this study gets to one of my general maybe pet peeves is, is the term about studies in the psychological sciences in general, which is that the stereotype that, you know, you're just in a psych department somewhere and you you do a study with 30 undergrads and, you know, you you write it up. But this was a case where actually that's the appropriate population, right? It's students. So it's not just undergrads, it's students in general, and it isn't just 30 undergrads and it's a well thought out. So it started off for me in a, a place where I was going to be skeptical, but we moved on from there. So Sarah, talk, talk us through, I mean, So you were the one who was interested in in this study and brought it to us initially, tell us what your, what you thought of it and what was what was interesting to you.
2: I was interested in this study because I think a lot about kind of universal approaches to mental health ways that we can implement kind of a a public health approach for mental health reaching every single adolescent and young adult. So we know that's a really epidemiologically vulnerable time in terms of the onset of mental health problems. And it's also, as the authors point out, a really key developmental time. So there's a lot of opportunity for education and for prevention during that time. And folks have probably seen various studies and sources of evidence that are reporting on the high rates of mental health problems in adolescents and young adults, the increasingly high rates, I should say. And so when we're talking about rates as high, you know, it it depends on what measure we're looking at, but as high as, you know, 50% of adolescents and young adults meeting criteria for a clinically significant mental health problem, we need a saturation approach or we need an approach that's going to reach. Everyone, we, we no longer can take this targeted approach where we're spending a lot of time trying to identify people at the highest risk as our first kind of mode of operation. We need to be disseminating mental health prevention from a public health perspective to all young people. And schools are obviously a really important setting to do this. So, yeah, I was just really excited to see something that is a short, scalable, seemingly cost effective. They didn't really talk too much about like what the costs would be, but can't I sh- be that much, no. it really, it really can't be. And so that to me is just really appealing. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what would a mental health curriculum look like in schools. And I think something like this, a synergistic mindset, which this is the first I've heard of that exact term of a synergistic mindset. And the combination of these two so I, I'm just really excited to hear about something that seems to be so effective across so many different domains
1: okay so it sounds like you're you're on board with this that sounds.
2: I think there are certainly some key limitations to the sampling, as you mentioned, some of the kind of convenience sampling and, you know, one of, so there's six studies with six sort of separate study designs, but one of the studies was focused on students in a low income school. So I liked that there was kind of some diversity in the populations that they were trying to reach. I, you know, I think there are certainly some limitations to the study, but. The kind of takeaway that this, as a universal intervention, has some efficacy, is really exciting to me.
1: So I will just say upfront: I went into this study with a bad attitude. Uh, <laughs> I picked this study up, and I was excited at first, but then I read the abstract, and I don't know. I got a, I got a funny feeling about this one. I sort of said, you know, this is this is going to fit the pattern of things that I don't like. And then I read. The first experiment, I'm, this is not true exactly what they did, but it's sort of like, a, imagine a stressful situation. Now we'll give you this intervention and we'll see, you know, how do you feel afterwards? You know, I look at that and I'm totally unconvinced. And then I look at, you know, these and they're, they're small sample size. Right. And then I get to, I think it was like the third experiment. And now, now you're talking about a large experiment where, you know, it's very clearly defined, you know, randomized. We're talking about actual stressful situations. So we're not talking about imagining things. As you say, we're measuring, you know, physiologic response. We're not just measuring how do you feel afterwards. And then you get to the one where they talk about, you know, pass rates in in, in schools. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is, this is amazing. So I, I started off in a really, I was not set up to like this study. And I did in the end thought it was was really interesting. I do have some just small concerns, and they are totally unfounded, and yet I can't shake them. So one is just the fact that I'm naturally skeptical of the idea that you could have a 30-minute video intervention that improves pass rates. We could just
0: substantially six months later. I we, had the six same Six months feeling. later.
1: Right, right. We could just roll this feeling. out across the country and you know I, like we would, I, I, I don't was know. There's just yeah. something that makes me skeptical. On the other hand, there's nothing in there that, that I can point to as to why. It's just sort of my natural, I don't know, you know, sort of like if it's too good to be true, maybe it is kind of thing. So I cannot point to anything, any flaw in a design. I cannot point to anything that I think they did wrong. I mean, even like, you know, some of their studies were pre-registered and some of them were not, but they have good reasons for why. Like it's not... This is this is good research, and yet there is something that just makes me wonder if the effects are truly as large as come across, but I can't tell you why. Jess, what's your—
0: I'm actually really glad that you mentioned this because I went into this study as the parent of two adolescents who have struggled during the pandemic, and we hear a lot as parents about the growth mindset. We don't hear so much about the stress as enhancing mindset, even though I feel like I've tried to convey that more casually to my to my daughters. But I think there's a lot about the growth mindset in the public school curriculum, at least in our public school curriculum now. And so that's an area that my kids are, are very familiar with already. I'm not sure it has helped them that much in managing stress, but I went into this as a parent. And one of the reasons I was really excited to have the chance to talk with you about this research and as I was reading it, I had that same feel, like, is this seems a little too good to be true. The figures are a little too evenly distributed between the effect and the baseline condition. Those lines are a little too neat. The curves are a little too neat. The linear patterns are a little too neat. And the fact that, you know, they showed... A benefit across all of their samples, all of their experiments. It seemed a little too good to be true, but I couldn't put my finger on what was off. And you say this is published in Nature, it's scrutinized. But it, you know, sometimes as an epidemiologist, having conducted my own data analyses, my own studies, you know that not every study you run gives you a neat linear pattern. And sometimes there's things that come out that you don't expect and you have to think about how to explain it. And it is rare to see a study where there are such consistent positive associations between such a minor intervention and such a substantial endpoint, especially the endpoints, as Matt was saying, that extended across many months of time. It's one thing to give someone a 30-minute intervention and then interview them immediately afterwards about how they feel. It's another thing to do the 30-minute intervention and then look at endpoints six, seven months later that are very substantial and involve A solid amount of effort, kind of completing your core curriculum successfully, for example, and then making the case that that was a causal pathway. But it's very interesting. If it works, if it's valid, that's fabulous. And I want to go home and do this 30 minutes with my kids and see what happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, like again, there's nothing I can point to. It's not like I can say... Oh well, you know this—they—they they did this wrong, or they did—you know—I mean, there are things I can quibble over, but I can quibble over any study. There's no such thing as a perfect study, but these are these are randomized studies. You got—you got solid endpoint data. They're, some of the experiments were quite large. They're in varied settings. Like there's—you know, this is good stuff. I'm not skeptical that there's a benefit. I'm—I'm I'm not. I'm just skeptical about the long-term effects on something so big that just sort of makes me wonder, but you know. I don't know.
2: Yeah, particularly thinking about the effects on academic performance. That's extremely important when we think about mental health inequalities and kind of the populations that are the most likely to be experiencing mental health problems, but not accessing services or some of the same groups of people who have, you know, lower persistence in education. So I thought that was really important and interesting. I share your, I guess, surprise. Like it felt- a bit yeah, it, it it makes me excited to think about, and they, they talk about, you know, there there need to be additional studies to really look at the generalizability of this. I will intentionally play devil's advocate, even though I agree with what both of you are saying around the value of a brief and really clear intervention and this Opinion comes from seeing some mental health interventions be kind of overly complicated. Mm -hmm. And so we think about, you know, this is a different topic, but like suicide prevention interventions that I think sometimes leave people feeling kind of overwhelmed, like there's too much to do there. How can I really step into this role? And actually, if you simplify the Mm -hmm. process of suicide prevention or you simplify kind of the stress response, actually, people might leave that intervention really holding on to the key components as opposed to if it were you know a you know many days long intervention tends to potentially overwhelm people. What I say, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about my work specifically, but I I talk a lot with leaders in higher education and I say, you know, brief interventions that that they're thinking about implementing one of the key things to remember. And I try to use language that they're familiar with now because of COVID, which is boosters Mm -hmm. or refreshers. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. these can't you know, it would have been interesting to see and I would be skeptical that the results or the effects of this study would persist for years. But an implementation strategy that's generally thought of as best practice would be having booster sessions Mm -hmm. of this type of training. So students maybe get this every year or they get it twice a year, kind of reminding them of this growth mindset and the stress can be enhancing mindset. And that I think is part of when we talk about kind of shifting cultures around mental health, it it involves pretty regularly reminding ourselves and re-educating ourselves of these kind of core principles and normalizing things. So that that would be just my devil's advocate. Is that a brief intervention? Sometimes, particularly if it has refreshers, can be pr- really effective.
1: No, you're I, and you're the expert here, and so I, I I really appreciate that, and that's that's sort of helpful in my. Thinking, I'm going to keep my eye on this because I'd love to see this replicated. One, one last thing I did want to point out about this study because I was Nature, in my opinion, sets me up to to not like a study because the <laughs> the methods come at the end, and so if I'm getting a result now, I, I can't judge. You know, I either have to go skip around to find the methods first to read it the way I'm used to reading it. Or I get a result and I don't know how to interpret it because I don't know what they did. And so when I was reading these results, I kept thinking to myself, well, you get an intervention of some kind, you know, a video intervention telling me something like maybe it's not the growth mindset. Maybe it's just somebody like paying attention and doing something like just saying, hey, we're going to think about mental health. But they had a, you know, what I would call an attention control. But I think there's another term for it, where the the control group they did actually get something, right? They got a, a video as well. It just wasn't a video about the growth mindset, so you could sort of rule that out a little bit, which I think is presumably best practices. So, anyway, any any last thoughts anyone anyone wants to throw out about this one before we move on?
0: I thought one of the things that was striking, maybe as a parent or as someone who's not. You know, very familiar with this literature, but just was the idea, like you're saying, Sarah, that they normalize these exposures and feelings, whereas, I think, as parents, the sense with stress is you want to say, like, oh, relax. <laughs> it's not such a big deal. Like, don't worry about it. It's not such a big deal. And the message here with these mindsets is the idea to say it's normal. What you're feeling is normal. And it's OK that you're feeling anxious. And it's it's adaptive. And it can help you. And how do you channel it? And so just even the framing of someone reading this article as a non-practitioner in this field was kind of eye-opening in terms of, you know, that mental health in adolescents and young people coming from the perspective of this is actually normal. This is not unusual. This is not unnatural. You're going through a normal experience right now and embrace that. And it's not going to last forever rather than, than just take a deep breath. Whereas I think now, or or avoid it or, you know, or switch, you know, switch her out of that class or away from that teacher or away from that friend or kind of whatever the stressor might be. But just, this is, this is a part of life, and you know, and to try to help your children navigate those experiences rather than try to extract them from those experiences.
1: Yeah, can I can I push back on that just a tiny bit? Because I agree with what you just said, and I and I this sounds right to me, right in a lot of ways. But I do think there becomes a point at which the, the where kids have so much stress right. that managing some of it, like walking away from some of it is actually a good thing. And I always, you know, one of the things that I, I very clearly remember in the transition from adolescence to adulthood is that you have a lot more control over the stressful situations that you're in as an adult, with the exception of, you know, there are, there are things often in our, in our work lives and our personal lives that we, we don't have control of that are, are very stressful. We can't just walk away from, but like we have much more control over You know, who we interact with on a daily basis. We are not subject to timed examinations. Like, I, when COVID happened, we switched to online education and we said, you know what? Everybody's stressed out. Everybody is, is nervous. Instead of, you know, doing timed examinations in class, we're just going to do a take home exam this year and whatever. And, and I actually think to myself, what, why do we do this? Why do we, put students through these timed examinations. The examination I get, right, we have to have some way of both evaluating how much the students are learning but also to you know force them to prepare. So I'm okay with that even though it's a it's a situation that we don't go through in the rest of our lives, right? We that's not how we're evaluated, but but to then further add a time pressure to it or to make it, you know, you have to memorize it all as opposed to, you know, allowing people to access resources. Why are we doing this?
0: Well, I've, I feel like I have said that in my mind and out loud to my students throughout my time as an instructor that there, there's no actual time in life where you will be sit down or you will have to sit down unless you're maybe a doctoral student and you're having your oral exam, but that's but that's even kind then, of a contrived environment like, also. Why do we do, that? Right? do, there, we do there, that? There's no real opportunity in your professional life where you're going to be grilled on your knowledge yeah. in writing yeah. in a 45 minute time period. It's a contrived and artificial environment and I agree it's unclear why we do it other than that it makes it makes it easier for us to evaluate who knows stuff yes.
2: yep right yep. and I think knowing the high levels of stress that adolescents and young adults have Thinking about ways that educational environments can maintain the rigor and the learning outcomes that we care about, but lower the stakes yep. for students is so key. So you said, you know, timed exams, but also exams that are like 50 percent of your grade mm-hmm. or more than that. I mean, the, the stress that that creates are certainly grading on a curve, which creates, you know, competition between students. All of these are, you know, practices that we would assume and there's evidence that, that they're negative for mental health. Just one last thing was the the authors did say that this intervention is not designed to change people's appraisals of serious, negative, and uncontrollable stressors such as trauma or abuse. Mm -hmm. So it really is trying to be about kind of daily, like Mm -hmm. normal life stressors, which I think is really, really important to underscore. Mm -hmm. Yep, Mm -hmm. absolutely. All right. Well, that was fascinating. Let's
1: move on to our our second topic where we actually want to talk with you, Sarah, about your— work and understand what it's like working in mental health. I have a lot of questions, that some of which flow from what we were just talking about, but maybe just to start us off, could you just tell us a little bit about your work in in mental health?
2: Yeah, absolutely. My colleagues and I run a national survey study called the Healthy Mind Study, which is an annual study of mental health in higher education. We've been running it for well over a decade now with students, and we just recently started doing surveys with faculty and staff at colleges and universities across the country, so for our student survey, we have over 700 colleges and universities that have participated in the study, more than half a million respondents, so a really large data set where we're able to look at prevalence rates, help-seeking behavior. It's a really comprehensive survey. It's a population-level approach. So we have random samples of students at colleges and universities, and we invite them to participate in this survey. So much of my work stems from that source of data kind of as the starting point. So every semester we have a new set of data from students across the country. I spend a lot of time kind of describing the state of mental health at colleges and universities. Thinking about variations across different settings, whether that be, you know, the state of mental health on community colleges or variations and inequalities that we see across student identity. So I place a lot of importance on describing the data and disseminating the data. And then it's just, it's really interesting. I, you know, I'm still relatively junior in my career, but I've been in this field of campus mental health research for over 10 years now. And in that time, the field, which I'm not even sure I would have called a field 10 years ago, and now it it really is, has grown so much and getting to kind of be be at the table with the people who are really thinking this through and who have other sources of data like National Counseling Center data. So really being able to be in the center of this topic of mental health in higher education has been really, really rewarding and being able to disseminate our healthy minds data and talk about what can colleges and universities be doing to address student mental health, to protect student mental health, to reduce inequalities. I worked in residential life for a number of years. I kind of thought that was the path I was going to go down. So I wasn't necessarily immediately a researcher, but that experience I came out of that experience with questions that I later realized were research questions, or were questions that needed data, and there, you know, there were not data at the time. And I've now been continuing in that world for quite some time. So, that's that's the gist of my work: mental health and higher ed.
1: So you you made the point that you spent a lot of time describing mm-hmm. uh, campus mental health, and I, you know, it, this is probably true of of every aspect of of health, but I. Certainly, I've noticed throughout the pandemic that the descriptive epidemiology during the pandemic was, I think, other than the vaccines, the most effective epidemiology that anybody did. And I suspect the same is true with mental health. Just being able to identify what's going on and where is, is a huge part of the problem or, or, or part of the, the, the need. I'm I'm curious though, I mean, it seems to me it's difficult to measure mental health. I mean, obviously we have tools and we have scales and things like that, but at the same time, you know, it, it does feel like it's, you know, these, these classification systems that we use to determine, you know, depression, say for example, you know, they're, they're not, it's much harder to measure than say a cancer diagnosis or, or high blood pressure. So I'm just curious how you think about that and how you deal with that in your work.
2: Absolutely. I mean, mental health is bi-directional. It is affected by so many things and it affects so many things. There are biomarkers for some aspects of mental health, but not at a population level, not that we're, you know, using it nearly as widely as, as screening tools. There's a lot of benefits to screening tools. The fact that, you know, they can be disseminated online, they can be, you know, done in so many different settings. In the Healthy Minds study for depression, for example, We have a nine-item screening tool called the Patient Health Questionnaire Nine, which is similar. It's often administered, like if you went to the PCP, or it's it's very, very widely used and has been validated across settings and populations. So that's certainly a strength of our data, is that we are using this validated screening tool. But but it yeah it is it is imperfect and. The work I do is with adolescents and young adults. And as we've talked about, you know, that is a tumultuous time. So sometimes, you know, we'll look at the data and think certainly there are some students who either, you know, went through a breakup, had some kind of time sensitive moment that impacted their answers to this survey. We do avoid doing the survey during finals. We know that's a really stressful time. Sure. Sure. So we try to, you know make it be administered the survey during a time that is more typical. But maybe like somewhat related to that is we wonder how whether our data are misrepresenting potentially the student population, like is mental health actually predicting whether someone would take our survey or not? Mm. So one of the really cool things about doing research on college campuses is that we can get information from the registrar's office so we know information about the entire population. We know the exact denominator of students. We know their Variables that would be contained at a registrar's office, which is usually like sex at birth, race, ethnicity, Pell Grant status, whether a student is international or U.S. citizen, a list of some key kind of characteristics. So we can weight our data in terms of those variables but we don't know how or we have a little bit of evidence around how mental health predicts students responding to the survey, which we can talk about a little bit more. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's imperfect. It's not it's a it's a difficult thing to measure. And yeah. um, I, one of the things that we try to advocate for is the use of consistent measures across different settings. So I mentioned the Counseling Center data, the National Counseling Center data at, at colleges and universities. So we've partnered with that organization to try to implement the same measures. So that they can then see what are we seeing in the clients who are actually stepping through the door or the Zoom room to access mental health services versus what the Healthy Minds data are showing at a population level. Mm -hmm. And those comparisons are easier, obviously, if we're using the same measurements. So. There's there's a there's a big push to try to harmonize measurement across different settings. Yeah.
1: Good.
0: I I had a question for you, you know, as I was saying as a parent of a 12-year-old and 14-year-old, I was there's so much in the media now about how terrible mental health is now for young people, for high school students, for college students, for young adults, even for younger teens. I was wondering if you see anything good <laughs> in your research. It, are there any are there any positive findings as it relates to mental health? I mean, we went through, we just talked about this article where maybe there's a promising intervention that can help students in a fairly straightforward way manage stress more productively or more effectively. And I was, I mean, as a parent, it's a scary time to be living right now, especially of a parent of young teens where you kind of see this world that they're moving into and it's terrifying. And you say, is there anything I can do to, you know, prevent my kids from kind of Becoming one of these, you know, prevalent statistics about all of these diseases. And I was wondering if there is or of these endpoints. And I was wondering if there if if you see anything benefit, if you see anything good happening in your healthy mind study or or if it's just all bad news.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not all bad news. We've seen rates of mental health stigma, another thing that's very Mm -hmm. difficult to measure. But we've seen rates of stigma go down significantly in recent years So students are more open to talking about mental health. We've also seen knowledge increase. So people have a language to talk about mental health now. There certainly are opportunities to continue to decrease stigma and continue to enhance knowledge, particularly given that young people are are often experiencing these symptoms for the first time, and it's really hard to identify them in yourself the first time you're experiencing them. I always start presentations on Our Healthy Minds data showing our measure of flourishing so we have an eight item measure of flourishing or positive mental health and I think the media frankly really focuses on the negative and that and that you know it makes all, a lot of sense and much of what I am you know talking about on a day-to-day basis is around the increasing prevalence rates of depression anxiety suicidality but we can't forget that there's a proportion of students it's around a third of students in our most recent data who are meeting our threshold for flourishing so they're you know they have positive mental health and I think it's really easy to forget about that proportion of students and also to remember that mental health is dynamic. I'll, I usually will say, like, for me, I, I mental health was not talked about when I was in college. I didn't participate in any surveys that were asking me these questions. But if I had, I imagine that there would have been times in my college career where I was flourishing and times when I would have screened positive for depression and certainly for anxiety. So mental health is dynamic. There's a, there's a number of things that kind of give me hope. One is just the attention from policymakers and leaders right now. I mean, I wished for years and years that I would ever find myself in a room with policymakers wanting to talk about mental health or with college presidents who, you know, would give me the time to to talk about this topic. And now it's, you know, constant opportunities to talk to folks who are leading systems and are thinking about it. Now the really hard piece at the end of that is now they're saying, what should we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's like in so many fields, but the urgency is really high in this case, there's just a lack of best practices that have been synthesized and organized and can be disseminated to folks easily. So it's a complicated question when campuses ask, you know, what should we be doing? The really Broad answer is a public health approach. Can I can yeah, I jump in there? So this is
1: a, a, the last question, then we'll move on. But I I'm really curious about this because it does seem to me that when it comes to you know public health in general has moved more and more towards medicine. I mean it's 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 moved you know more and more towards putting the onus on the individual for solving societal level problems. And I'm just curious your thoughts. I mean, did it? Do we put too much? I mean, when I so I I love this article we just read, you know, uh, a 30-minute video sounds great. But essentially what we're saying is we have to teach kids how to improve their mental health as opposed to redesigning the world that we live in so that there is less stress, anxiety. And I'm just curious your thoughts about whether we, we, we have moved away from public health approaches when it comes to everything, but mental health being one of them towards, you know, individual level approaches.
2: I'm really glad you asked that. I think there's a lot of opportunities for system level change. So my some of my research right now is focused on the experiences of trans and non-binary college students and things like name change policies. That is something at a system level, allowing students to have their preferred name and pronouns in campus records, gender inclusive restrooms, anti-discrimination policies. These are all things that are taking the onus off of the individual, as you said. So I think that's, extremely important. A lot of the cross campus or within any school setting, kind of the collaborations that need to happen or bringing together entities that are not otherwise, you know, mental health experts like Financial aid, we know financial stress is actually probably the most salient predictor of poor mental health in student Mm -hmm. populations. And so we need to galvanize around that. We need to recognize that. We need to bring in partners who are working in financial aid on campus as part of a campus mental health system. And then to the second part of the question around kind of the individual responsibility, we see in adolescents and young adults that as stigma has gone down and as knowledge has gone up, the the treatment gap or the proportion of people who are screening positive for mental health problems and not seeking help, that treatment gap has actually continued to be pretty much just as wide as it was 10 years ago, which suggests that even if we were to completely erase stigma and everyone knew the signs and symptoms and knew what resources were available to them, there still are going to be barriers. Mm -hmm. And the barriers that young people report are things like, I don't have time. I question how serious my needs are. I'm going to deal with this on my own. And so bringing resources, mental health resources and education and interventions like the one we discussed into students' default routine lives rather than expecting them to step out of their daily lives and proactively go and seek help, which was the expectation for so long. I think that's a really important kind of shift in the delivery of mental health systems and services is meeting young people in their daily routines and having less expectation that they are going to seek help given that many of them, it's the first time that they've experienced these challenges. So
1: that's fantastic. And I, I, it was really interesting to learn more about what you do and and to see how you think about these things. So let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Jess, you want to, you want to go first this time?
0: Thanks Sarah. Now this is something quite different from mental health and adolescents and young adults. I wanted to talk about, did you see all, there was some news in the last month or so about the immortal jellyfish. Study.
1: I, I, you, I you don't feel like I sections? vaguely okay. heard about this, but no, I do okay. not know about the Amorgino.
2: You know, <laughs> Tell us about the, the immortal, immortal, jellyfish. immortal
0: jellyfish. There was a study published, I think it was in early August, in PNAS by researchers at the University of Oviedo, which is in Spain, mm-hmm. where they were mapping the genetic sequence of a particular kind of jellyfish that can continually rejuvenate, basically, even after it attains... Sexual maturity, it seems as if many different species of jellyfish can go through these cycles where before they achieve sexual maturity, they can, for protective reasons, kind of like become youthful again, and it's part of the life cycle of the jellyfish. Mm -hmm. But there's this one species of jellyfish, it's called Toripitos dornii, that after it reaches a stage of sexual maturation or adulthood, can then revert back to a larval state. And what?
1: yeah, it goes, it goes it,
0: back and then it can go forward and it can go back. And so these re- these Spanish researchers compared the genome of this type of jellyfish that can revert back to a larval state after sexual maturity to another type of jellyfish that can do that same back and forth process, but not after sexual maturity to try to understand they were claiming kind of the, the secrets of aging. Or is there a genetic recipe for eternal youth that might be something of interest to humans as we try to, can we turn back the clock? And so this animal has been termed the immortal jellyfish and they did they did make some interesting observations that's why this paper was published in pnas like my usual ones are not so but th- this is like yeah, a, yeah. you know this is one and so they found a few things but nothing that's kind of like screaming out as particularly unique but specifically they found that that these the immortal jellyfish is better at maintaining telomeres which are the end of chromosomes which as they shrink as the telomere link, length shrinks it's associated with aging yep. but of course the news media jumped on this like this is a recipe for eternal Youth, and it was actually you know I feel like we talk about this quite a bit, or at least I do, in the amazing and amusing segment that for some of these articles, the the authors are quoted saying it's not what you're gonna right. say
2: that it <laughs> is,
0: right? Like you're gonna say that yep. this is something you can put in a cream and then have eternal <laughs> youth. Yep. Just eat jellyfish or slap it on your skin, and the Don't authors are quoted Don't no, and the authors are quoted in all these articles saying there's no commercial <laughs> commercial value of this research. You Yet. Even though the headlines are Ollie was picked up in live forever. live forever with, you know, non-reducing telomeres of the eternal jellyfish. But I think this was an interesting one. It's an interesting study, but also how it was interpreted and picked up by the media is also interested. And then how, how the authors continually are quoted
2: saying, hold on, cool. don't go there. I know you're going to go there, but don't. Yep. Just step back. I yeah? love it.
1: That's awesome. All right.
2: That is a very good segue to what I was thinking of yeah. for Amazing and Amusing, which is a book that I am reading called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us by Ed Young. Oh, have this is right at my alley. I have no. not, but Ed okay, is, is fantastic. It, so. Yes. It is incredible. It walks through senses, so sight, hearing sound, talks about heat, light and you know just really is incredible you know thinking of the immortal jellyfish just understanding the the realm of of animals is is absolutely amazing and i learned a new word which is what i wanted to share which is the umwelt um umwelt umwelt is that a i believe part of a body? i believe i'm pronouncing it correctly <laughs> it a flavor of it is ice a cream? german word for environment okay so every every creature's umwelt is actually different so he talks about a tick, so trigger warning. I, I really don't like ticks, but he okay. gives the example of a tick. So he says, a tick questing for blood cares about body heat, the touch of hair, and the odor of acid that emanates from skin. These three things constitute its umvelt. So it's, okay. that is right. that is the tick's umfelt and there are other things. There are trees. There are roses. There's a sky. There's colors. Um, but these are not part of the tick's world. And he says the tick doesn't willfully ignore them. It simply cannot sense them and doesn't know that they exist. And it's just really interesting. He says basically uh. every single one of us is stuck in our own umvelt. Mm. And he writes in the introduction that it's a book not about superiority, but about diversity. So, you know, humans, for example, we have some of the best eyesight until it gets dark and then we have not that good eyesight. Terrible. But in the light, we have some of the best eyesight. And I think, you know, oftentimes that could be like, oh, we're superior because of this. But he really takes this approach of it's it's about diversity. It's about, you know, every living creature has its own umwelt And he says the real glory of colors isn't that some individuals see more of them, but that there's such a range of possible rainbows. Oh, and I really like that. And he's just an incredible he, writer.
1: He's a phenomenal writer. Wow. Oh.
0: What's so father? I, as as you were talking, I was just struck by, you know, having young children. You realize how in addition to my teenagers, I have two little little guys and you realize how when they're just born, their Umwelt is just you. Is like Mm -hmm. your body and your partner. And then as they get older, their world expands, but it's slow. It's kind of, you know, and I, I saw it particularly with the pandemic with my now two and a half year old that, you know, like, they're born and their whole world is just your body <laughs> and like me and my husband and they just like go back and forth or they're in the little chair, but they can't see much. And then like it becomes like the living room and their bedroom and then they're maybe your backyard and then they go to preschool. And so, you know, it kind of it, it gradually expands in a way for a tick, it probably doesn't. <laughs> um, but then, you know, for us during the pandemic. The umwelt felt much smaller. Oh, yeah. Like much, much, much smaller. Where I think, like, we sometimes now, I speak for myself, have anxiety sometimes coming into the office or doing my commute because I've been out, you know, we were kind of out of it for a while. Yeah. That broader kind of what is our habitat? What is our environment? Where that used to not give me anxiety at all. So how it changes, how it can change too. And it's not static. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: Super interesting. All right. Well, mine is very different. Mine is just an idea that I want feedback from you all. Okay. So a colleague sent me this paper by Steve Goodman. Steve is a, a biostatistician who's written a lot about Bayesian methods and how we should be using them more. This is a, a worldview piece. I, I can't even figure out what, I guess it was nature. It was in one of the nature, publications and he talks about the fact that you know epidemiologists researchers publish these findings all the time but we don't ever say like how confident are we in the result right we 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 don't put a probability statement on it and he says you know basically like imagine the man or woman doing the weather saying to you you know it's 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 going to rain tomorrow but they don't say like a 50% chance of rain like if if they did that if they didn't do that and it didn't rain you would say, well, what are you doing? Whereas if you say, you know, there's a thirty percent chance of rain, and it doesn't rain, nobody is particularly surprised. And he's saying, you know, we should be putting probability statements on our findings. And you know, he's he's a proponent of Bayesian methods, so that's really what he's sort of getting at. But I bring it up is the reason this was sent to me was in reaction to a, a statement that I made to somebody as a comment, which is a statement I've made many times. I, I say it to my students all the time, and I'm curious your your feedback on this. I, you know, with the psychology went through. is going through the replication crisis, a lot of findings that get published that don't actually, when people go back and try to repeat the experiment, actually find that it replicates, and there's all kinds of reasons why that would happen. So I have long proposed the idea, and I think I've said this on this program before, but I just want to say it again, the idea that if you had to bet $1,000 of your own money every time you published a study that... Within 10 years, your finding would be proven correct. And obviously that's a difficult thing to do because what do we mean by correct? I don't want to be in a hypothesis testing world. But anyway, like if we had some way to figure that out, to say, okay, this, this actually panned out, you were, you were right. That if it it worked out, you would get uh, $10,000 back. But if you were wrong, you would lose your $1,000 and it had to be your own money. Couldn't be grant money. Had to be your own money. How many fewer studies (laughs) do you think would be published? If people actually had to risk money on their own results,
2: I think we would see inequalities in publishing because doctoral students. I mean, maybe maybe there's a sliding scale of. Yep. Sure,
1: we 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 could implement <laughs> the 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 point the point only being we want to make it some sort of risk to the person to their willingness to state I believe what I've done. So yeah, so that's so fair enough. So we would want some kind of sliding scale to make it work and be equitable. But how many fewer? publications do you think there would be? 80%. <laughs> That's what I think too. I mean, I, maybe not eighty percent, but a lot, certainly fifty percent. A,
0: a lot. I mean, I think it would exclude people from the field who are more risk averse,
2: right? Yeah. People who
0: just either didn't have the money to pay to play, or or just didn't want to. be like, no, it's too stressful. I don't want to do that. But when you
1: that. say risk averse, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, right. we're talking 10, right. to, ten to one odds, right? So mm-hmm. you don't have to be right in order to break even over right, time. Right, right. You would have to be right one in ten times, actually. Right. I mean, obviously, there's you know inflation and discounting and all that sort of stuff but i mean like the reward is enough that it's not like you have to be right all the time and yet i still think people would be much less willing to publish if they had to state you know put some kind of of their own value into it
0: right i mean it's true that our you know as researchers it's not as if always your kind of quote unquote statistics or evaluations are based on the truthfulness of the work you publish in the future. Yeah. Right. I mean, in that moment, it could seem right or it could be right in the context of the data that you presented, but that doesn't mean that when replicated, it'll hold up. Like I could publish a study on a biomarker associated with a disease that I found in my population, but that doesn't mean that same biomarker will be found in a broader population, right? And, yeah. and so so those, those are not metrics that are used. It's you know, but it's it's an interesting thing to think about like how does your work hold up over time yeah. and you know, should you strategically kind of lead yourself in directions that you think might be better able to withstand the test of time and, you know, kind of maybe push away some of those lower hanging fruit projects that might be a quick paper, but that might not be kind of the long-term
1: stuff. I want to make it clear. There are all kinds of reasons, just scientific reasons why this would be a terrible idea. I, I'm not, I get it. I'm not actually saying we want to do this. I just, I, I like the thought experiment of, you know, what, what we actually think people believe about their own work.
0: But I think it plays into just, you know, just speaking from my own experience, if you work in the context of a longitudinal data set, you know, we think a lot about, do you publish baseline data, cross-sectional data from baseline? Do you wait until you have, you know, three rounds, four rounds? When do you start to look at the data to make a decision as to this is, these are the characteristics of my population, or these are Mm -hmm. the risk factors, or this is kind of... What I'm seeing and the pressure is often on to make those early reports, you know, because you want to get papers out before you put in your renewal for your R1 and you want to, you know, you want to have a paper from baseline, but that's, that's only one time period. And, you know, the longer you wait, the higher quality potentially your work can become, but the incentives of our, of our work are not to do that.
1: Yeah, totally agree. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. So we want to thank Sarah for, for joining us and letting us talk with you about your work. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at pophealthex or you can find us on any of our individual Twitters or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode.